10 for Brendan Taylor. He's got the Australian captain. We're talking about Rivada. We're talking about how good he is. And there it is. It's 39th one day international 100. The King gets his crown at the Adelaide Oval. Go on, take it. Deep in Wigan. Glenn Maxwell celebrates Rick Cole. He cannot believe it in the middle of the ground. Welcome to the Dean at Stumps podcast. Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket show with expert analysis by Dean Duplessis. Hello and welcome to the Dean at Stumps podcast with me, Dean Duplessis. Great to have you along. And if you've maybe just found out about the podcast for the first time, and if you'd like to subscribe, you do it via all the main podcast apps. So your Apple Cast, Spotify, Downcast, Overcast, any one of those, you, you search for Dean at Stumps, that as an AT, not the at sign. And you subscribe and you listen to some fantastic interviews with the likes of Graham Hick, A.B. de Villiers, J.P. Dumini, Kumar Sangakara, and another one who's about to be added to the list. It gives me great joy to welcome, all the way from Perth, Western Australia, Mr. Cricket himself, Michael Hussey. Mike, how are you? Thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Dean, uh, no, absolute pleasure. Um, I'm looking forward to I'm looking forward to the chat. And uh, yeah, you, you sound like you've had some uh, wonderful guests there. So I feel very honoured and privileged to be uh, you know joining joining the list. Thank you. Yeah, they've been very kind to accommodate a puny little podcast from Harare. I can assure you, it's been great fun though. Um, so uh, I suppose you've been asked this question about a hundred times on a hundred previous podcasts. But um, well, you you guys in Perth or in Western Australia are actually pretty lucky now. Because correct me if I'm wrong, but you are now officially corona free is that correct and you are you but but you obviously uh, are now able to go about your business in a relatively normal fashion we've actually been very lucky our government's been very strict uh, our borders have been closed for, for some time now and um yeah we, we've been oh, i guess the, the the public have have stuck to the rules that the government's put in place um and yeah we've been very very fortunate we're, we're basically able to live Normally, um, the kids are at schools. The uh, the kids are playing their their uh, team sports and and things like that. Um, so um, yeah, we feel very fortunate that we're able to get around and, and live corona free at the moment. Um, and and particularly when you sort of see some of the stories from other parts of Australia and and, and in fact the world, um, we feel very blessed at the moment. So we're we're certainly watching and, and feeling for the people that are doing it really tough at the moment. And I've I've got a brother who lives in Melbourne um, and a brother-in-law that lives in Melbourne. So. Uh, they're, they're obviously doing it really tough at the moment. So, um, yeah, our hearts go out to those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. So let's get into the meat and potatoes of, uh, of what we're going to be talking about. I love this nickname of yours, Mr. Cricket. Now, how did that come about? Oh, well, it actually started in England. I was playing county cricket for uh, Durham and uh, we were playing against Lancashire at Old Trafford and, and it was one of those cold, miserable, sort of drizzly days. Um, you know, no one really wanted to be there except for me. I, I was loving it. I was batting and charging between the wickets and calling loudly, sliding, diving all over the place. And uh, Freddie Flintoff was playing for uh, Lancashire and, and he turned to Brad Hodge, who was the overseas player there, and said, well, this... This guy loves cricket more than anyone I've ever seen him a lot. He, he must be missed cricket. And, um, and unfortunately, Brad Hodge brought that back to Australia and uh, a few of the boys got a bit of humour out of it. So uh, it sort of stuck from there. So, yeah, it's a bit embarrassing, I guess. Um, I, um, I don't 
feel like I deserve the tag, <laughs> but I guess you could be called a lot worse things. <laughs> you certainly could be. And I mean, at the end of the day, cricket is something that so many of us love. And what is your thoughts on the importance of first-class cricket? Because I've heard a couple of interviews with you where you have been you know, pretty vocal in, in expressing the importance of, of playing as much first-class cricket as you possibly can. You know, so for example, whenever countries go on tour, when, when we were teenagers, we, you know, when, for example, Australia toured England or vice versa, there'd be a whole bunch of warm-up games where you would play, you know, Australia would play the counties or, or England would play the state sides. And, and the, I suppose the growth of younger players was good, but also to ensure that players really were in excellent form by the time the test series started. So are you still very passionate about the importance of first-class cricket? You know, and, and for a number of reasons. For, for the touring team, um, uh, that's one of the biggest challenges from playing overseas is, is acclimatising to the conditions in, in a foreign country. And, you know, I certainly found it difficult going to places like India and, and England and, and, and trying to, to adjust to the different types of pitches. And so the more first-class games you can play in the lead-up to the first test match of a, of a series, that the better you're going to be. Um, unfortunately, these days, with the schedule being so tight, uh, you generally might only get one or two matches in the lead-up. And, and personally, I don't think it's enough for the, for the uh, opposition team to really get used to the conditions. But, but on the other side of it, it's a fantastic opportunity as a first-class player to play against international players. I remember as a youngster playing for Western Australia and, and every year we'd get to play against the, the international touring team um, at the WACA and to, to play against the likes of Alan Donald and Sean Pollock or WACA Eunice um, you know, some of the West Indians as well, like Courtney Walsh and Kirtley Ambrose, was just an unbelievable experience and a great learning experience for, for young players coming through. So I, I think first-class cricket is, is hugely important um, and, and even going a step further, the, the level below that in, in club cricket, you know, that, that, that's, you know, extremely important um, in, as part of the pathway as well. Yeah, I, I know that you have a very big uh, affection. Well, both you and Ricky Ponting have uh, a lot of affection um, for for club cricket or grade, grade cricket, I think, as, as you would call it. But that's absolutely spot on. Did you, in your long and illustrious first-class career, I if I remember correctly, you started in the 1994-95 season. So you would have been alongside, obviously, the likes of Tom Moody, Adam Gilchrist, and Murray Goodwin, who obviously was born in Zimbabwe, then played quite a bit of his cricket for Western Australia, uh, and then came back to play for Zimbabwe. But w did you ever play any Zimbabwean sides when you when you played for Western Australia, or or not? No, I, I don't remember uh, playing against Zimbabwe. Um, I never got to tour there, which which um, I'm really disappointed about. I would have loved to have come uh, to to the country to play some cricket. Uh, it's got a fantastic history, and and obviously playing with Murray uh, for Western Australia, he, he had many. Uh, amazing stories of the country and uh, and the cricket, of course, and their cricket experiences. Did play against uh, a few um, Zimbabwean players uh, over the journey, like Heath Streak and Andy Blignort played a, a season for um, for uh, Tasmania there. Yes, yes. Um, but I think if my memory serves me correct, it might have only got to play one one match at the Wacker against the Zimbabwe team um, when they were touring Australia. But but yeah, that, that that's pretty much it in throughout my whole career. 
Okay, all right. And um, the, the nice thing or the, the incredible thing, I suppose, Hase, with regarding your career is that you made your one-day international debut against India at the age of 29 in 2004. And then at the age of 30, you made your test debut against the West Indies. Now, in terms of daily, I suppose, day-to-day -day routine, 30 is still very young. But in terms of cricket, it's not old, but it's not young either. I think mature is the word maybe that, that springs to mind. So when you made your debut against the West Indies at the age of 30, did you feel that you knew your game pretty or did you know, did you know your game pretty well when you made your, your debut, having played so much first-class cricket and scored over 15,000 runs? Yeah. Put it this way, I would have loved to have an opportunity at a younger age, uh, but the Australian team was just so strong uh, th through that era of cricket. And um, I was waiting in the wings a long time and, uh, and just could not quite get an opportunity. So... When it did come up, I guess the blessing in disguise for me of, of having to wait so long is, yes, you're right, I, I did have a great understanding of my game um, and what I needed to do uh, and how I needed to prepare to give myself the best chance of having success, ha having played yeah, so much first-class cricket uh, and county cricket and, um, and built up a lot of experience over the years. It, it really did help me once I got to that level. Now, no one can really prepare you for what international cricket is like um, um, but at least I had a good understanding of my game. So I, I just ne needed to learn about all the external distractions, like the more media, the bigger crowds, there's more uh, sponsors to uh, functions to attend and, uh, you know, uh, a lot more, uh, you know, sort of involved in international cricket compared to first-class cricket. So I just had to come to terms with that. But as far as a, a batting and cricket side of things, yes, yeah, so I, I had a good understanding of what I needed to do. And, I mean, obviously you would have played against the likes of, Shane Warne, Brett Lee, Glenn McGrath, the War Twins on several occasions at first class level. But does it change in terms of facing a McGrath and a Warne, you know, in a match versus when you actually now get to be with them and play against them in the nets? Um, I mean, at, I, I would imagine that they're very competitive on the field, even at domestic level. But uh, is, there, is there a slight change in intensity levels when you are with these players in the nets, when you eventually made your way into the Australian squad? There's a different intensity. That those guys were very experienced campaigners by the time I came into town. So they knew what they needed to do to be ready. And, and quite often for those guys that you mentioned, McGrath and Warren, that they didn't need a great deal, um, uh, particularly in the lead-up to a match, um, to get themselves ready to go. They generally take it pretty easy. Uh, having said that, uh, most of the other guys that I faced in the nets, it was just a brutal battle. Uh, I, I think of guys like, yeah, like Brett Lee would charge in off his long run, um, I think of Mitchell Johnson uh, in, in more recent times, like James Pattinson and Mitchell Stark. That you know, they were just uh, horrible to face. And, and um, if you knew if you could survive in the nets, you could pretty much survive anything in the middle. So <laughs> they, they were torrid affairs. But um, but yeah, certainly yeah, certainly gave you confidence, I guess, if you get through unscathed and then go out there and um, uh, and play in the test match. But but having said that, you know, being in the middle and watching the likes of Warren and McGrath go about their work was just an unbelievable experience. You know, obviously you, you watch them from afar and you realise how good they are, but when you're actually out there and how they're setting batsmen up and, and uh, the tactics they use, and, and Warney in particular, you know, it was, it was just like a whole sideshow going on and, 
he, he was a magician in just trying to set a batsman up, talking to the umpire quietly, letting him know what he was going to bowl and trying to talk to a fielder out in the cover region when really he was setting him up for an LBW shout. So, you know, he was just an absolute master at work. He had a great cricket brain and, um, yeah, it was just an honour, I guess, to be out there on, in the middle with him. Mm, I'm sure it was, absolutely. And then, you know, you would have had the likes of Adam Gilchrist as well, who was just a magician in the way that he was able to brutally take the game away from the opposition. So you would have played with him uh, at uh, for, for Western Australia and then continue to your journey with him at Test Match Cricket. What sort of an, I suppose, an influence was he to you? Influence to me because he actually started his first class career at New South Wales and yes. um, he, he left there and moved over to Western Australia and his first year in the state squad um, was the same time that I joined the, uh, the, the state squad as well. So we, we sort of built up a bit of a friendship right from the word go. He, he's an unbelievable character, Gilly, a great team man and, and obviously what we've seen uh, throughout his career, a great player as well. And I guess I was just lucky to come into such a a strong Australian team where there was so many so many experienced players that it almost took so much pressure off me to perform because I, I sort of was going out there thinking, well, you know, it, we've got Hayden and we've got Langer, we've got Ponting. Well, if they don't get runs and, and I don't get runs, we've still got Gilly to come or we've got, you know, Damien Martin or, or Michael Clark. So, if, you know, it, it was an amazing team to be a part of and, uh, yeah, it was, it was a great environment. They really made you feel like you were part of it and, and good enough and, and deserved to be there. You know, the one thing that still amazes me is that conversion rate, 90 or 2950s and 1900s. And as we've already alluded to, you started your, your international career at a mature age. Uh, but, but were there times when you actually maybe did feel, uh, you, what was the adaption like from going from playing a lot of first class cricket and you would have played against some seriously good players, you know, the touring sides, you'd have played a lot of county cricket uh, and of course Sheffield Shield cricket. Now you make the step up to playing test match cricket. It seemed to me that you didn't really have a great deal of pressure or is that just something that you maybe showed from the, from the outside but then felt differently, you know, inside? Because, wow, I mean, it's astonishing that at such an age you, you could still average consistently over 50 throughout your test career with, with the figures that I've just mentioned. So it, to me, it seems like you didn't really feel a great deal of pressure from adapting, you know, from playing test, uh, first-class cricket to test cricket at, a, at quite a late stage in your career. Pressure. Don't, don't worry about that. But it, it's an interesting point that you make because it, it, was a, it was a hard lesson that I had to learn from playing so much first-class cricket. Like, uh, as a batsman, it's such a long journey. And when I started my career for Western Australia as a young player, I performed pretty well, but I couldn't quite make that next step up for you know to, to nationals uh, level. And 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 I started to put more pressure on myself and try harder and train more and and. And that ended up having a detrimental effect on my performance and, and culminating with me being dropped from the Western Australian team. So, so at that stage of the game, my, my dream of playing for Australia was pretty much over. And, and so at that point, I decided to, you know what, not, let's not worry about playing for Australia. Let's take the pressure off myself. Let's go back to enjoying the game and playing my way again. 
Um, and, and funny enough, as soon as I did that, um, my the consistency of my performances returned, and and that's when I got my opportunity to play for Australia. So I had to learn a pretty tough lesson there. Um, and, and I guess the challenge was once I got picked for Australia was to keep that same mentality. And as I mentioned earlier, I was very fortunate to come into such a strong Australian team where yeah. there probably was less pressure on me. Um, you know, as a new player with so many great players around me, um, it, the team, although it was still relying on me to score runs, it, it wasn't sort of life and death. And, and it, when I found it more difficult and, and probably felt more pressure was, you know, about two or three years later, once a lot of those great players had retired, and then I'd become more of a senior player and, and inadvertently started putting more pressure back on myself. And, and, I, and I did go through a period for about 18 months there where I was very inconsistent and, again, trying too hard and, and making the same mistake that I did when I was playing for Western Australia. So I had to then come out of the other side of that and go back to just, just relaxing and playing and preparing well and, and then what would be would be. Um, when you when you have so many superstars in a team as you did, you know, obviously you've mentioned Hayden, Langer, Gilchrist, Warren, McGrath, Lee, the War Brothers. You would have played with as well. Well, I mean, they were you were a bit after Steve War and, and so on, but you certainly would have interacted with them at some point leading up to you getting into the squad. But how, I wonder how difficult it is to manage such a team of superstars because I would imagine as well as you guys got on there would have been uh, differences of opinion and, and even people not particularly liking each other but still having to play together for the sake of the team. It's a good point and I, I think I didn't actually notice um, much or many arguments at all. Um, you, you're 100% right though. There's a lot of different personalities, a lot of different egos um, but those guys have been together for I think over a decade. So they knew each other inside out. They knew when to sort of uh, be around each other and have a laugh and when maybe with the good times to, to, to sort of maybe just steer clear of someone. So they had a great understanding of each other's personalities and, and what made them tick. And, and, and I think that's probably part of the ingredient of a very successful team, being able to keep a core group of players together for a long period of time so they really get to uh, understand each other. But you can also, you should, well, I believe we should also be giving a lot of credit to um, John Buchanan, who was coach for a, a large period of that time. He, he was an absolute master of understanding the different personalities in the team and motivating the player according to his personality. He wouldn't necessarily be able to help you from a technical or a tactical sense with your batting or your bowling or things like that. But but from from a point of view of um, identifying a personality and, and then, yeah, motivating them according to that, he, he was an absolute genius. And, and you're right, he, he had some huge egos to deal with there. You know, guys like Warney and, and McGrath and Hados and, uh, you know, these and, and Ricky, you know, these guys are huge megastars. Uh, and, and the way he managed them was just absolutely incredible. I mean, it's so fascinating to hear this because I've I've just read Shane Warne's book, No Spin, his autobiography, where, well, let's just say him and John Buchanan did not get on or he didn't think a, a great deal of, of John Buchanan, but he understood that obviously they had to, you know, work together as a team for the, towards the success uh, of the team. But um, it seemed to me that there was also, a, a f where, uh, I suppose, a, p a time when it started falling apart just a little in the ashes of 2005, where 
You know, England obviously played some amazing cricket. I think that bowling attack, in my opinion, uh, was really something that went a long way towards the success of England. Would you would you agree with that? Because that Harmison, Hoggard, Flintoff, Jones and Giles, I mean, they just seem to do everything spot on and 100%, which sadly, from an Australian perspective, led to England once again winning the Ashes after many years of failure. That was an incredible series, and it just had this funny feeling in the air, you know, right right from the start. You know, the Aussies bounded into England and just dominated the, the test match at Lords, and we thought, oh, here we go again. But then, I don't know, there was sort of this belief in England. They were a good cricket team. Um, and then when McGrath gets injured in, at Edgbaston the, the morning of the game and, and somehow England... Uh, you know, uh, win that amazing test match there, you sort of think, well, hang on, what, what's going on here? There's, there's something there's something funny going on here. And, and I, I don't know what was going on behind the scenes because I wasn't part of that series personally. But, uh, yeah, I, I, from what I understand, that there was a, a few fractions going on in the Aussie team. So I, I don't know the exact details, but it wasn't the most harmonious tour. And I think maybe the pressure got to the players a little bit uh, at various stages. And, uh, yeah, England deserved it. I think once they they got that belief that they could compete with this Australian team, um, then the momentum started to really go their way. Um, and, and yeah, they, you know, they, they fully deserved it. And, and I know I was disappointed, obviously, as an Australian, uh, for, for us to lose that series and England to, to take the ashes. But as far as... Um, you know, uh, a real shot in the arm for Test match cricket and Ashes cricket. Uh, it was just the best thing that could happen for the game because England then came to Australia in 2006-7, and the hype for that series was unbelievable. You know, um, you, you could not get a ticket anywhere, and uh, every single Test match was just completely sold out all five days. And 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 yeah, as I said, the hype was uh, amazing. So so it was a really it was probably, in hindsight, it was a really great thing for, for um, Test Match Cricket and Ashes Cricket. And you, you led me up beautifully to the next question. I love the way you did that because in 2006-07, everybody expected another very closely contested series in Australia, but it wasn't because Australia simply blew England away from the very first ball when poor old Steve Harmison bowled a ball to his mate Freddie Flintoff at slip. Um, Australia were just all over England and never, ever allowed them really to recover. We saw a couple of good individual performances, Paul Collingwood, Kevin Peterson, and so on. But I wonder what the what the, the change was in Australia to ensure that they were not only going to win this series, but completely and utterly demolish England in that particular series as well. Five series in England. I, I coming into 2006, I've not seen a group of players so determined, so focused, so intent on winning a series and not just winning it, winning it in, in style um, than that Australian team. The, the, the preparation was unbelievable. The hunger was unbelievable, and uh, you know we're, we're generally pretty hard to beat in Australian conditions. And and Ricky as captain was just so determined that once we got on top, we we're just going to put the foot on the throat and just not let it off. And and uh, yeah, we, we got the ascendancy early and uh, and just held on to it throughout the whole series and, and really broke England's spirits. And, and from what we sort of understand in hindsight, that you know, when the pressure went back onto the England team, you know, that, that's when that little fractures in their team started. So um, yeah, it's, it's a difficult place to come, Australia, when, when you're behind and uh, when the opposition's playing with a lot of confidence. Mm. And out of the, the 19 test hundreds that you've scored, which one would you say was the one that really stands out to you that you'll always remember um, for, for the rest of your life? Best. 
uh, you know, your first Test match century is it's. Well, I get embarrassed now when I when I've seen the highlights of my uh, reaction. <laughs> it was basically 10, 10 or twelve years of pent up emotion just waiting to come out. But um, yeah, just 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 the realization um, that you've scored a Test match century at the highest possible level of cricket is proving to yourself and the world that you are good enough to succeed at that level, and and that that. It makes all the whole journey, all the hard work, all the, the tough days, um, you know, well worth it. So uh, that, that, that's probably, that, that moment is, is something that I'll cherish forever. So for me, there are a couple of hundreds that I remember with a huge amount of fondness. Has the 195 that you scored against England at the Gabba was incredibly special. I remember a very good hundred that you scored against South Africa in Durban back in March of 2006, where uh, you initially started off very circumspectly, and then suddenly, you know, you just basically went through through the gears and and transferred the pressure right back onto South Africa. I'm sure you remember the one I'm talking about. That would have been the second Test match because the first one was played in Cape. Town and then the second one in Durban. But another hundred that, that springs to mind again uh, against the South Africans would have been in your fifth test match when you were involved in a partnership with Glenn McGrath and you, the two of you added over a hundred for the, for the last wicket with McGrath scoring 11, not out. Just, just talk to us a bit about that innings. I mean, that was, I was lying in my bed here in Zimbabwe and listening to a radio, you know, ball by a ball account of it. And, and I, although I can't see at all, I would imagine my eyes were going wider and wider in, in the disbelief just to see how you really, again, uh, expressed yourself from going from what you were 20 odd not out and ended up scoring 120. And the way that you took on the South African quicks was, was pure delight from a cricket enthusiast's point of view. Incredible experience. Right, right from the, the morning, uh, that, that morning, um, you know, Kerry Packer had passed away the night before and, and he was someone in Australia who had an enormous impact uh, in helping the players and the players' conditions move, uh, you know, in the game. And so, um, you, know, he, he, you know, him passing away and we had a minute silence for him, um, not that that motivated me anymore, but I just, again, had the feeling in the air that, you know, this was going to be a special day for Australia and, um, going out there to bat, I, I think you know, what, what maybe some people don't realise, I, I spent most of my first-class career as an opening batsman right. and I, I moved down into the middle order um, you know, uh, in, in the Australian test team after, after a couple of test matches opening. So um, I absolutely loved batting in the middle order. It, it was so much fun. Um, you just got so many different situations to bat. You, you might come in. You know, when the team's in trouble at sort of three or four for 50 and, and try and resurrect the innings, you might have to come in when the captain's looking to declare and just sort of have a bit of a swing. But but you also get the opportunity to bat with the tail. And I, I really enjoyed that day with Glenn McGrath. You know, we were in a bit of trouble, to be honest, and nine down. And it's almost like the pressure goes off a little bit. Um, this was the biggest test match of my life, playing in a Boxing Day test, uh, massive crowd at the MCG, it doesn't get any bigger, uh, you know, at, at certainly at that stage of my career. And here I am batting with Glenn McGrath, who's, you know, a legend of the game. And any run that we get is just a complete bonus. So we just sort of said to each other, well, let's just see how we go. We, we had a bit of a plan of um, uh, I would try and take the first four balls uh, of the over and then either try and hit a four or get a single um, and, and get get down the other end to face the, the start of the next over. And that was the general sort of plan. Um, and, and Graham Smith, obviously, is South African captain. He, he knew what we were trying to do as well. So he was moving the field out and then bringing them back and we were playing cat and mouse with each other. And, and 
it, it just became so much fun annoying the South Africans and the South African captain um, because the tactics seemed to be working our way and we were getting away with it a bit. We were certainly having plenty of luck along the way as well. Uh, and it sort of motivated us and, and uh, the momentum just sort of kept rolling on because things were going our way and, and every run you could just see them getting angrier and angrier and it was just fueling us more and more and um, the crowd was roaring and, and yeah, I, I couldn't actually believe it that, that, I, that I managed to score 100 um, you know, and, and I certainly owe a lot to, to Glenn McGrath that day because he, he did show a lot of a lot of character, a lot of fight, um, a, a lot of courage uh, to, to hang out there um, for all that period of time, and, and it got Australia into a position where you know we were a lot a stronger place in the game, and, and managed to go on and win that Test match. So it was, uh, yeah, one of my again one of my most fondest innings of all time, um, and yeah, it certainly means a lot to me. You, you seem to have a habit, or you seemed to have a habit, of scoring a lot of runs with the tail, because if I remember correctly, in 2006, you and Jason Dizzy Gillespie were involved in a monumental partnership as well, a partnership of uh, over 300, if I'm not mistaken, when, uh, when Dizzy came in as night watchman, is that correct? Correct. <laughs> I think he was too scared to get out because he'd run Ricky Ponting out for 50. Uh, on one of the best batting pitches in the world in Bangladesh. So uh, fast outfield, beautiful batting pitch. He thought, I can't get out of here. But it was, again, it was very funny. Uh, I, I think my, my theory on it was I'd like, always like to show a lot of faith in the, in the tail, um, give them confidence, um, give them a clear, clear sort of role as well. And, and Dizzy Gillespie, you know, he, he had a, a very solid defence uh, and, and he was determined to stay out there and... We had a lot of fun along the way as well because every great player's highest score that he um, passed, he would just let me know about it. So he'd get to 130-odd and say, oh, yeah, I've just passed Mark Moore's highest score. And, oh, I've just passed Damien Martin's highest score. I've just passed Michael Clark's and just passed Adam Gilbert or whoever it may be. And he was just rolling through them. And he was really disappointed because Ricky Ponting declared on him just before he passed Steve Waugh's highest test score. And uh, so he was, he was a bit upset about that. But no, it was a, it was a fantastic inning from Dizzy. Right, we're going to be wrapping up shortly, but um, off, off the top of my head, if uh, I were to ask you to, to give me your most difficult four-pronged pace attack that you ever that you faced throughout your test career, are you able to do that off the top of your head? It's pro- probably a South African attack right. com- comprising of, uh, you know, Dale Stane, Mornay Morkel, Vernon Philander, uh, probably throw Jacques Callis in there as well and... Um, you know, they, they had a number of spinners uh, that, that just did a tidy job. You know, uh, I think of uh, Paul Harris, I think it was, you know, a left-arm spinner who just, just darted into the rough. He was get, uh, hard to get away as well. So I'd probably say that was one of the toughest attacks I had to face. Um, it depends on where you play. You know, you, you go to England and, and you've got to contend with, yeah, the likes of, you know, Hoggard or Harmison, Broad, Anderson. You know, that, that's, a, that, or that's a pretty darn good attack as well. Um, Chuck Freddie Flint off in there as well with Graham Swan bowling the spin. You know, there's a pretty good group of, of bowlers there. You know, and particularly in English conditions, it's always tough. Then you go to India and you got to contend with the, the spinners. Um, so it, it depends on where you play, but I'd say probably the, the English and the uh, South Africans were probably the two hardest attacks I had to face. And did you ever face Mohamed Asif? Because he was very similar to Vernon Philander, as I understand it. Not quick, but he was able to put the ball in good areas and nubble it around just enough to cause a lot of trouble. Uh, in, in fact, yeah, there, there was a Pakistan attack there for a while that, that was uh, extremely strong. You mentioned Mohamed Asif. Um, uh, uh, 
Umar Ghul was probably at his best then. And I think Mohamed Amir was just a young 17-year-old bowling beautifully at that time. And, and Danish Canaria, the leg spinner. Yeah. Um, so, so that was an outstanding attack. Very skillful players, the Pakistanis. And uh, yeah, certainly had some good battles with them along the way as well. And who was the best captain, in your opinion, that you played under? Which captain did you play, enjoy playing under the most? Ricky, you know, he, he just backed his players in um, three seconds in. Uh, you know, he, he he was just incredible. Even if you weren't going so well, he, he would, you know, fight for you and, and want you in the team. And, and he set such high standards himself. And, and you're just always trying to live up to those standards. But, um, yeah, he, he was such a competitive man, always, always you know, lo- loved playing for Australia. And, uh, yeah, so I, I love playing under him. I also... In T20 cricket, love playing under MS Dhoni. Uh, you know, he, he's a different captain. He's a lot calmer and, and in control, a bit mysterious in a lot of ways, but, again, has enormous faith in his players. You know, I think in T20 cricket where it can be very volatile and, and I see other teams chop and change their team so much, with, with, with Chennai Super Kings, you know, we hardly change the team for, for, for a number of years. Uh, and... It goes back to that um, that understanding. If you can keep a core group of players together for a long period of time, they get to understand each other, understand each other's games and roles, and, and, and you could have success. So I believe he's a, he's a very smart, intelligent captain as well. Do you? This will be my second last question, and I promise I'll let you go after that. But but do you think the IPL has been good for world cricket? Because it it seems to me. Uh, and it's a nice thing that that India has benefited most out of the sharing aspect of the IPL. And I, I say this because, if for example, when if you remember when South Africa last toured India, India won the Test series against South Africa not with their spinners but with their pace attack. I mean, you know, you would never, uh, not even ten years ago, would you hear of India beating South Africa in India with a pace attack? It would normally be with their spinners, and obviously their fielding has come along in leaps and bounds as well, and they've produced some very very good fast bowling so do you think that India have benefited the most out of all the t- the players and the countries uh, that have been a part of the IPL I do I do think India have benefited uh, the most um, but it's 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 twofold as well I think it's it's wonderful for the Indian players to get access to the overseas players, to learn from them, watch how they prepare. Yes. Um, great exposure for young Indian players to see what it's like playing under lights in front of big crowds, again, to learn off the senior Indian players and, uh, and overseas players. But I can tell you, it's, it's fantastic opportunity for the overseas players as well. Uh, I can only speak for myself, but to be in the same dressing room with so many different cultures, players from the West Indies, South Africa, India, England, New Zealand, um, you know, anywhere. You, just, just to be able to watch these guys, learn off these guys. I spoke a lot to the Indians about playing spin in India, so it was great education uh, for, for me personally. Um, but, but, yeah, of course, without doubt, um, it has been most beneficial for the Indians, and, then, and rightly so, I guess. It's in their country. Um, T20 cricket as a whole ha- has been good for the game, I, I believe. However, I, I, I do still think that Test Cricket is number one and, and I hope that, that um, the administrators uh, um, still believe that to be the case and, and want Test Cricket to thrive and, and survive in the future. So I think we're lucky that um, uh, Virat Kohli, uh, the Indian captain, is still very passionate about Test Match Cricket and, and, and let, yeah, let's hope that that, that remains the case yeah. because I, I still believe there's a... Um, that there's a place for all three formats of the game. Um, I, I think T20 is a great vehicle to introduce the game to, to new new people, new fans, 
to, to young children uh, to get them to fall in love with the game and then hopefully we can introduce the game, you know, uh, the, the 50 over format and, and then ultimately test match cricket. T- test match cricket is the toughest test of all. It tests you on, on so many different levels. Uh, that's where you get the most respect from your peers by performing in test match cricket. And so I'd certainly like it to see it. Uh, I'd love to see it survive for, for many, many more years. I have a WhatsApp status that says test cricket is the best cricket. So I totally agree, agree with you on that one, Huss. Then finally, who was the toughest captain you played against in test cricket? Um, oh, Graham Smith was certainly a tough captain. Um, uh, who else did I go up against? I thought I had a lot of respect for Andrew Strauss as a captain as well. I, I thought he was uh, a very intelligent skipper with the way he went about it, very well organised, very planned. Graham, Graham Smith just had a fantastic team at his disposal. Not, not, not saying he wasn't a good leader as well. He, he was a you know a fantastic leader, and, and I spent some time with Mickey Arthur um, when he was the Australian coach and. And, you know, he, he spoke very fondly and, and highly of uh, Graham as a captain with, with everything that he had to deal with. So I probably respected him him very highly as well. Um, so, yeah, I also really admired uh, someone like Brendan McCullum, who, who, um, who really just grabbed that New Zealand team and, and played such a positive and exciting brand of cricket, probably more so in the, in the white ball uh, with the 50 overs. Um, but, uh, you know, it certainly had... I think I had a lot of respect for, for all those guys, really. Yeah, because they made it to the top, absolutely. Mr. Cricket, Mike Hussey, thank you. Thank you so very much for taking time out to be on the Dean at Stumps podcast. It's uh, something that a lot of people appreciate. A puny little podcast here from Harare, Zimbabwe, that has Mr. Cricket on it is uh, very much appreciated and wishing you everything, uh, all, the, all the best and success for uh, all your future endeavours. Thanks very much for having me on. Um, it's always great to reminisce and happy old times. And uh, yeah, good luck. Good luck with the uh, the show. I hope it continues to go from strength to strength. So yeah, thanks very much for having me on. You've been listening to Dean at Stumps, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket podcast.